Section 13 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mario Pineda. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen by Albert Hubbard. Peter Cooper, Part 1. Let our schools teach the nobility of labor and the beauty of human service, but the superstitions of ages past. Never. Peter Cooper. Peter Cooper was born in New York City in the year 1791. He lived to be 92 years old, passing out in 1883. He was successively laborer, clerk, mechanic, inventor, manufacturer, financier, teacher, philanthropist, and philosopher. If Robert Owen was the world's first modern merchant, Peter Cooper was America's first businessman. He seems to have been the first prominent man in the United States to abandon that legal wheeze, cabit amateur. In fact, he worked for the buyer and considered the other man's interests before he did his own. He practiced the golden rule and made it pay, while most of us yet regard it as a kind of interesting experiment. I have said a few oblique things about city bread boys and city people in general, but I feel like apologizing for them and doing penance when I think of restless, tireless, eager, brave, honest, and manly Peter Cooper. When that New York City woman, last week, observing the beautiful brass model of an Oliver Plow on my mantel, asked me, What is this musical instrument? She proved herself not of the Peter Cooper tribe. She was the other kind, the kind that seeing the polywoes remarks, Oh, how lovely, they will all be butterflies next week. Or, which cow is it that gives the buttermilk? A question that once made Nathan Strauss walk on his hands. Although Peter Cooper was born in New York City and had a home there most of his life, he loved the country and for many years made Sunday sacred for the woods and fields. Yet, as a matter of strictest truth, let it be stated that, although Peter Cooper was born in New York City, when he was two years old, like Bill Nye, he persuaded his parents to move. The family gravitated to the then little village of Peekskill, and here the lad lived until he was 17 years old. Next to Benjamin Franklin, Peter Cooper was our all-around educated American. His perfect health, living to a great age, with sanity and happiness as his portion, proves him to be one who knew the laws of health and also had the will to obey them. He never retired from business. If he quit one kind of work, it was to take up something more difficult. He was in the fight to the day of his death, and always he carried the flag further to the front. He was a free thinker at a time when to have thoughts of your own was to be an outcast. His restless mind was no more satisfied with an outworn theology than with an outgrown system of transportation. His religion was blended with his work and fused with his life. He built the first railway locomotive in America and was its engineer until he thought others how. He rolled the first iron rails for railroads. He made the first iron beams for use in constructing fireproof buildings. He was the near and dear friend and advisor of Cyrus W. Field and lent his inventive skill, his genius, and his money to the laying of the Atlantic Cable, and was the president of the Atlantic Cable Company for 18 years. In building and endowing Cooper Union, he outlined a system of education so beneficent that it attracted the attention of the thinking men of the world. 
and it is even now serving as a model upon which our entire public school system will yet be founded a system that works not for culture for brick-a-brick purposes but for character and competence a what-not education may be impressive but is worthless as collateral the achievement of peter cooper make the average successful man look like a pygmy what the world needs is a few more peter coopers rich men who do not absolve themselves by drawing checks for charity but who give their lives for human betterment let us catch up with peter cooper john cooper the father of peter cooper was of english stock he was twenty-one years old in that most unforgettable year seventeen hundred seventy-six at the first call to arms he enlisted as a minuteman he fought valiantly through the war in the field and in the fortifications surrounding new york city and came out of freedom's fight penniless but with one valuable possession a wife in seventeen hundred seventy nine he married the daughter of general john campbell his commander who was then stationed at west point it was an outrageous thing for a sergeant to do and i am sorry to say it was absolutely without orders or parental permission the bride called it a cooper union the Campbells, very properly, were Scotch, and the Scotch have a bad habit of thinking themselves a trifle better than the English. Like the Irish, they regard an Englishman with suspicion. The Scotch swear that they have never been conquered, certainly not by J. Bull, who has always been quite willing to give them anything they ask for. At the time of his marriage, Sergeant Cooper was engaged in the laudable business of looking after General Campbell's horses, and also, let it be known, of making garden for the Campbell family. In his garden work, John Cooper was under the immediate orders of Margaret Campbell. After hours, the surgeon used to play a piccolo, and among other tuneful lays, he piped one called The Campbells Are Coming. It was on one such musical occasion that the young couple simply walked off and got married, thus proving a point which I have long held to wit. Music is a secondary love manifestation. On being informed of the facts, General Campbell promptly ordered that Sergeant John Cooper be shot. Before the execution could take place, the sentence was commuted to thirty days in the guardhouse. After serving one day, the culprit was pardoned on petition of his wife. In a month, he was made a captain, and later a lieutenant. The business of a soldier is not apt to be of a kind to develop his mental resources. Soldiers fight on their orders, and initiative, production, and economy are mere obstructions to your man or the sword. Suffice it to say that in the war, John Cooper lost the ability to become a civilian of the first rank. He was industrious, but improvident. He made money, and he lost it. He had a habit of abandoning good inventions for worse ones. The ability to eliminate is good, but in sifting ideas, let us cleave to those that are workable until fate proves there is something really better. Peter Cooper was the fifth child in a family of nine. Bees know the secret of sex, but man does not. Peter Cooper's mother thought that her fifth child was to be a girl, but it was not until after the boy had grown to be a man and was proving his prowess that his parents remembered why they had called him Peter, and said, On this rock shall our family be built. To be born of parents who do not know how to get on and be one of a big family is a great blessing. We are thought by antithesis quite as much as by injunction and direction and chiefest of all we are thought through struggle and not through immunity in that vacuum called complete success peter cooper's childhood was one of toil and ceaseless endeavor just one year did he go to school just one year in all his life and then for only half a day at a time his short ration of books made him anxious to know anxious to learn 
and so his disadvantages gave him a thing which college often fails to bestow, that is, the study habit. And the reason he got it was because he wanted to go to school and could not. Happy Peter Cooper! And yet he never really knew that many a Jew of his sent to school and dinged out by pedagogues until examinations become a nightmare and college a penalty. Thus, it happens that many a college graduate is so rejoiced on getting through and standing on the threshold that he never looks in a book afterward. Of such a one, we can very properly say, he got his education in college, when all the world knows that the education that really amounts to anything is that which we get out of life. The climbing propensities of Peter Cooper were made manifest very early in life, Later, that developed into a habit and a shifting ground from the physical to the psychic, he continued to climb all his life. Also, he made others climb, for no man climbeth by himself alone. At twelve, Peter Cooper proudly walked the ridgepole of the family residence, to the great astonishment and admiration of the little girls and the jealousy of the boys. When the children would run in breathlessly and announce to the busy mother, Peter, he is on the house! The mother would reply, then he will not get drowned in the Hudson River. At other times it was, Peter, he is swimming across the river. The mother then found solace in the thought that the boy was not in immediate danger of sliding off the house and breaking his neck. Once, little Peter climbed a lofty elm to get a hanging bird's nest that was built far out on a high projecting limb. He reached the nest all right, but his diagnosis was not correct, for it proved to be a hornet's nest, beyond dispute. To escape the wrath of the hornets, Peter descended the tree overhand, which being interpreted means that he dropped and caught the limbs as he went down so as to decrease the speed. The last drop was about thirty feet. The fall didn't hurt, but the sudden stop broke his collarbone, knocked out three teeth, and cut the scar on his chin that lasted him all of his days. Life is a dangerous business. Few get out of it alive. Life consists of betting on your power to do to achieve, to accomplish, to climb, to become. If you mistake hornets for birds, you pay the penalty for your error, as you pay for all mistakes. The only men who do things are those who dare. Safety can be secured by doing nothing, saying nothing, being nothing. Here is to those who dare. Because a thing had never been done before was to Peter Cooper no reason why it should not be done now, and although he innocently stirred up a few hornets' nests, he became a good judge of both birds and hornets through personal experience. That is the advantage of making mistakes, but wisdom lies in not responding to encores. Peter Cooper's body was marked by the falls, moles, holes, and scars of burns and explosions. Surely, if God does not look us over for medals and diplomas, but for scars, then Peter Cooper fulfilled the requirements. When 17 years old, he went down to New York and apprenticed himself to a coachmaker, Woodward by name. He was to get his board, washing and mending, and $25 a year. It was a four-year contract, selling himself into service and servitude. The first two years he saved $20 out of his wages. The third year his employer voluntarily paid him $50 and the fourth year $75. In short, the young man had mastered the trade. Woodward's shop was at the corner of Broadway in Chambers Street, which was then the northern limit of the city, just beyond this was a big garden, worked by a prosperous and enterprising Irishman who supplied vegetables to ship captains. This garden later was transformed into City Hall Park, and here the city buildings were erected, the finest in America for their purpose. The Irish still command the place. 
New York City then had less than 40,000 inhabitants. Peter Cooper was to see the city grow to 2 million. For 71 years after his majority, he was to take an active and intelligent interest in its evolution, tinting his best thought and hopes with his own aspiration. The building of coaches then was a great trade. It was a stagecoach times, and a good coach was worth anywhere from 300 to to $1,000. The work was done by small concerns, where the proprietors and their apprentices would turn out three or four vehicles a year. To build the finest coaches in the world was the ambition of Peter Cooper. But to get a little needle capital, he hired out to a manufacturer of wooden cloth at Hampstead, Long Island, for a dollar and a half a day. A dollar a day was good wages then, but Cooper had inventive skill in working with machinery. He had already invented and patented a machine for mortising the hubs of wagon wheels. Now he perfected a machine for finishing woolen cloth. As the invention was made on the time off and in the mill where he worked, he was given only a one-third interest in it. He went on a visit to his old home at Peekskill and there met Matthew Bazaar, who was to send the name of Bazaar down the corridors of time, not as that of a weaver of wool and the owner of a very good brewery, but as the founder of a school for girls, or as it is somewhat anonymously called, a female seminary. Peter Cooper sold the counter right of his patent to Matthew Bazaar for $500. It was more money than the fighter had ever seen at one time in all his life. The War of 1812 was on, and woolen cloth was in great demand, the supply from England having been shut off. Opportunity and Peter Cooper met, or is the man himself opportunity? The ratio of marriages, we are told, keeps pace with the price of corn. On the strength of his $500, Peter Cooper embarked on the sea of matrimony, as the village editors express it. When Peter Cooper married Sarah Bedell, it was a fortunate thing for the world. Peter Cooper was a common-sense man, which is really better than to be ingenious. A common-sense man is one who does nothing to make people think he is different from what he is. He is one who would rather be than seem. But a common-sense man needs a common-sense woman to help him live in a common-sense life. Mrs. Cooper was a common-sense woman. She was of Huguenot parentage. Persecution had given the Huguenots a sternness of mental and moral fiber, just as it had blessed and benefited the Puritans. The habit of independent thought got into the minds of these Huguenots, and they played important parts in the war of the revolution. Like the Jews, they made good freethinkers. They reasoned things out without an idolatrous regard for precedent. For 57 years, Peter and Sarah fought the battle of life together. He clarified his thought by explaining his plans to her, and together they grew rich, rich in money, rich in knowledge, rich in experience, rich in love. There are men who are not content to put all their eggs into one basket and then watch the basket. Peter Cooper craved the excitement of adventure. His nature demanded new schemes, new plans, new methods upon which to break the impulse of his mind. The trade wind of his genius did not blow constantly from one direction. Had he been content to focus on coach building, he could have become rich beyond the dream of avarice. As it was, the fact that he could build as good a coach as anyone else satisfied that quarter section of his nature. When the War of 1812 closed, there was a great shrinkage in wool. Peter Cooper sold his holdings for a grocery store, which he ran just long enough to restock and sell to a man who wanted it more than he did. Then he started a furniture factory, for he was an expert worker in wood, but the bench for him was only by play. As he worked, his mind roamed the world. He used glue in making the furniture, 
He bought his glue from a man who had a little factory on the site of what is now the Park Avenue Hotel. The man who made the glue did not like the business. He wanted to make furniture, just as comedians always want to play Hamlet. Peter Cooper's furniture shop was in a rented building. The glue man owned his site. Peter Cooper traded his furniture shop for the glue factory and got a deed to the premises. He was then 33 years old. The glue factory was the foundation of his fortune. He made better glue and more glue than any other concern in America. Few men of brains would get stuck on the glue business. There are features about it not exactly pleasant. The very difficulties of it, however, attracted Cooper. He never referred to his glue factory as a chemical laboratory, nor did he call it a studio. He was proud of his business. He made the first icing glass manufactured in America, and for some years monopolized the trade. But one business was not enough for Peter Cooper. Attached to the glue factory was a machine shop which was the scene of many inventions. Here in 1827 and 1828, Peter Cooper worked out and made a steam engine which he felt sure was an improvement on the one that Watt had made in England. Peter Cooper's particular device was a plan to do away with the crank and transform the rectilinear motion of the piston into rotary motion. He figured it out that this would save two-fifths of the steam and so stated in his application for a patent, a copy of which is before the writer. The patent office was then looked after by the president in person. Peter Cooper's patent was signed by John Quincy Adams, President, Henry Clay, Secretary of State, and William Wirt, Attorney General. The patent was good for 14 years, so anyone who cares to infringe on it can do so now without penalty. There were then no trained patent examiners, and the President and Secretary of State were not inclined to hamper inventors with technicalities. You paid your fee, the patent was granted, and all questions of priority were left to be fought out in the courts. More patents had been granted to one individual, say Thomas A. Edison, than were issued in America, all told, up to the time that Peter Cooper went down to Washington in person and explained his invention to John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay, who evidently were very glad to sign the patent, rather than bother to understand the invention. In his application, Peter Cooper states, This invention is a suitable model for hauling land carriages. It was one year before this that Stevenson in England had given an exhibition of his locomotive, the Rocket, on a circular two-mile track in Manchester. Cooper had not seen the Rocket, but Stevenson's example had fired his brain, and he had in his own mind hastened the system. At this time, he was 36 years old. His glue business was prosperous. Several thousand dollars of his surplus he had invested in charcoal kilns near Baltimore. From these he had gone into a land speculation in the suburbs of that city. His partners had abandoned the enterprise and left him to face the disgrace of failure. End of section 13